Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading the second half of The Tunnel Under the World by Frederick Pohl. The Crystal Cafe was no longer painted red, but the temperature was still up, and they had added piped-in music interspersed with commercials. The advertisements were for Frosty Flip, Marlin cigarettes, they're sanitized, the announcer purred, and something called Choco Bite candy bars that Burkhart couldn't remember ever having heard of before, but he heard more about them quickly enough. While he was waiting for Swanson to show up, A girl in the cellophane skirt of a nightclub cigarette vendor came through the restaurant with a tray of tiny scarlet-wrapped candies. Choco bites are tangy, she was murmuring as she came close to his table. Choco bites are tangier than tangy. Burkhart, intent on watching for the strange little man who had phoned him, paid little attention. But as she scattered a handful of the confections over the table next to his, smiling at the occupants, He caught a glimpse of her and turned to stare. "'Why, Miss Horn,' he said. The girl dropped her tray of candies. Burkhart rose, concerned over the girl. "'Is something wrong?' But she fled. The manager of the restaurant was staring suspiciously at Burkhart, who sank back in his seat and tried to look inconspicuous. He hadn't insulted the girl. Maybe she was just a very strictly reared young lady, he thought in spite of the long, bare legs under the cellophane skirt. And when he addressed her, she thought he was a masher. Ridiculous idea. Burkhart scowled uneasily and picked up his menu. Burkhart! It was a shrill whisper. Burkhart looked up over the top of his menu, startled. In the seat across from him, the little man named Swanson was sitting, tensely poised. Burkhart! The little man whispered again. Let's get out of here. They're on to you now. If you want to stay alive, come on. There was no arguing with the man. Burkhart gave the hovering manager a sick, apologetic smile and followed Swanson out. The little man seemed to know where he was going. In the street, he clutched Burkhart by the elbow and hurried him off down the block. Did you see her? He demanded. That horn woman in the phone booth? She'll have them here in five minutes, believe me, so hurry it up. Although the street was full of people and cars, nobody was paying any attention to Burkhart and Swanson. The air had a nip in it, more like October than June, Burkhart thought, in spite of the weather bureau. And he felt like a fool, following this mad little man down the street, running away from some them, toward... toward what? The little man might be crazy, but he was afraid and the fear was infectious. "'In here!' panted the little man. It was another restaurant, more of a bar, really, and a sort of second-rate place that Burkhart had never patronized. "'Right straight through,' Swanson whispered, and Burkhart, like a biddable boy, sidestepped through the mass of tables to the far end of the restaurant. It was L-shaped, with a front on two streets at right angles to each other. 
They came out on the side street, Swanson staring coldly back at the question-looking cashier, and crossed to the opposite sidewalk. They were under the marquee of a movie theater. Swanson's expression began to relax. Lost them, he crowed softly. We're almost there. He stepped up to the window and bought two tickets. Burkhart trailed him into the theater. It was a weekday matinee, and the place was almost empty. From the screen came sounds of gunfire and horses' hoofs. A solitary usher, leaning against a bright brass rail, looked briefly at them and went back to staring boredly at the picture as Swanson led Burkhart down a flight of carpeted marble steps. They were in the lounge, and it was empty. There was a door for men and one for ladies, and there was a third door marked Manager in gold letters. Swanson listened at the door and gently opened it and peered inside. Okay, he said, gesturing. Burkhart followed him through an empty office to another door, a closet probably, because it was unmarked. But it was no closet. Swanson opened it warily, looked inside, then motioned Burkhart to follow. It was a tunnel, metal-walled, brightly lit. Empty, it stretched vacantly away in both directions from them. Burkhart looked wondering around. One thing he knew, and knew full well. No such tunnel belonged under Tylerton. There was a room off the tunnel with chairs and a desk and what looked like television screens. Swanson slumped in a chair, panting. We're all right for a while here, he wheezed. They don't come here much anymore. If they do, we'll hear them and we can hide. Who? demanded Burkhart. The little man said, Martians. His voice cracked on the word, and the life seemed to go out of him. In morose tones, he went on, Well, I think they're Martians. Although you could be right, you know. I've had plenty of time to think it over these last few weeks, after they got you. And it's possible they're Russians, after all, still. Start from the beginning. Who got me when? Swanson sighed. So we have to go through the whole thing again. All right. It was about two months ago that you banged on my door late at night. You were all beat up, scared silly. You begged me to help you. I did? Naturally, you don't remember any of this. Listen, and you'll understand. You were talking a blue streak about being captured and threatened, and your wife being dead and coming back to life, and all kinds of mixed-up nonsense. I thought you were crazy, but, well, I've always had a lot of respect for you, and you begged me to hide you, and I have this dark room, you know. It locks from the inside only. I put the lock on myself. So we went in there, just to humor you. And along about midnight, which was only 15 or 20 minutes after, we passed out. Passed out? Swanson nodded. Both of us. It was like being hit with a sandbag. Look, didn't that happen to you again last night? I guess it did. Burkhart shook his head uncertainly. Sure. And then all of a sudden, we were awake again. And you said you were going to show me something funny. And we went out and bought a paper. And the date on it was June 15th. June 15th? But that's today. I mean... You got it, friend. It's 
always today. It took time to penetrate. Burkhart said wonderingly, You've hidden out in that dark room for how many weeks? How can I tell? Four or five, maybe? I lost count. And every day the same. Always the 15th of June. Always my landlady, Mrs. Kiefer, is sweeping the front steps. Always the same headline in the papers at the corner. It gets monotonous, friend. It was Burkhart's idea, and Swanson despised it, but he went along. He was the type who always went along. It's dangerous, he grumbled worriedly. Suppose somebody comes by, they'll spot us, and... What have we got to lose? Swanson shrugged. It's dangerous, he said again, but he went along. Burkhart's idea was very simple. He was sure of only one thing. The tunnel went somewhere. Martians or Russians, fantastic plot or crazy hallucination, whatever was wrong with Tylerton had an explanation, and the place to look for it was at the end of the tunnel. They jogged along. It was more than a mile before they began to see an end. They were in luck. At least no one came through the tunnel to spot them. But Swanson had said that it was only at certain hours that the tunnel seemed to be in use. Always the 15th of June. Why? Burkhart asked himself. Never mind the how. Why? And falling asleep, completely involuntarily, everyone at the same time, it seemed, and not remembering, never remembering anything. Swanson had said how eagerly he saw Burkhart again. The morning after Burkhart had incautiously waited five minutes too many before retreating into the darkroom. When Swanson had come to, Burkhart was gone. Swanson had seen him in the street that afternoon, but Burkhart had remembered nothing. And Swanson had lived his mouse's existence for weeks, hiding in the woodwork at night, stealing out by day to search for Burkhart in pitiful hope, scurrying around the fringe of life, trying to keep from the deadly eyes of them. Them, one of them, was the girl named April Horn. It was by seeing her walk carelessly into a telephone booth and never come out that Swanson had found the tunnel. Another was the man at the cigar stand in Burkhart's office building. There were more, at least a dozen that Swanson knew of or suspected. They were easy enough to spot once you knew where to look. For they, alone in Tylerton, changed their roles from day to day. Burkhart was on that 851 bus every morning of every day that was June 15th, never different by a hair or a moment. But April Horn was sometimes gaudy in the cellophane skirt, giving away candy or cigarettes, sometimes plainly dressed, sometimes not seen by Swanson at all. Russians? Martians? Whatever they were, what could they be hoping to gain from this mad masquerade? Burkhart didn't know the answer. But perhaps it lay beyond the door at the end of the tunnel. They listened carefully and heard distant sounds that could not quite be made out, but nothing that seemed dangerous. They slipped through, and through a wide chamber and up a flight of steps, they found they were in what Burkhart recognized as the Contro Chemicals Plant. 
Nobody was in sight. By itself, that was not so very odd. The automated factory had never had very many persons in it. But Burkhart remembered from his single visit the endless, ceaseless busyness of the plant. The valves that opened and closed, the vats that emptied themselves and filled themselves and stirred and cooked and chemically tasted the bubbling liquids they had inside themselves. The plant was never populated, but it was never still. Only now it was still. Except for the distant sounds, there was no breath of life in it. The captive electronic minds were sending out no commands. The coils and relays were at rest. Burkhart said, come on. Swanson reluctantly followed him through the tangled aisles of stainless steel columns and tanks. They walked as though they were in the presence of the dead. In a way, they were. For what were the automatons that had once run the factory, if not corpses? The machines were controlled by computers that were really not computers at all, but the electronic analogs of living brains. And if they were turned off, were they not dead? For each had once been a human mind. Take a master petroleum chemist, infinitely skilled in the separation of crude oil into its fractions. Strap him down, probe into his brain with searching electronic needles. The machine scans the patterns of the mind, translate what it sees into charts and sine waves, impress these same waves on a robot computer, and you have your chemist, or a thousand copies of your chemist, if you wish, with all of his knowledge and skill, and no human limitations at all. Put a dozen copies of him into a plant, and they will run it all. 24 hours a day, seven days of every week, never tiring, never overlooking anything, never forgetting. Swanson stepped up closer to Burkhart. I'm scared, he said. They were across the room now, and the sounds were louder. They were not machine sounds, but voices. Burkhart moved cautiously up to a door and dared to peer around it. It was a smaller room, lined with television screens, each one, a dozen or more at least, with a man or a woman sitting before it, staring into the screen and dictating notes into a recorder. The viewers dialed from scene to scene. No two screens ever showed the same picture. The pictures seemed to have little in common. One was a store, where a girl dressed like April Horn was demonstrating home freezers, one was a series of shots of kitchens. Burkhart caught a glimpse of what looked like the cigar stand in his office building. It was baffling, and Burkhart would have loved to stand there and puzzle it out, but it was too busy a place. There was the chance that someone would look their way or walk out and find them. They found another room. This one was empty. It was an office, large and sumptuous. It had a desk littered with papers. Burkhart stared at them, briefly at first, then, as the words on one of them caught his attention, with incredulous fascination. He snatched up the topmost sheet, scanned it, and another, while Swanson was frenziedly searching through the drawers. Burkhart swore unbelievingly and dropped the papers to the desk. Swanson, hardly noticing, yelped with delight. Look! He dragged a gun from the desk. And it's loaded, too! Burkhart stared at him blankly, trying to assimilate what he had read. 
Then, as he realized what Swanson had said, Burkhart's eyes sparked. Good man, he cried. We'll take it. We're getting out of here with that gun, Swanson, and we're going to the police. Not the cops in Tylerton, but the FBI, maybe. Take a look at this. The sheaf he handed Swanson was headed. Test Area Progress Report. Subject, Marlin Cigarettes Campaign. It was mostly tabulated figures that made little sense to Burkhart and Swanson, but at the end was a summary that said, Although Test 47K3 polled nearly double the number of new users of any of the other tests conducted, it probably cannot be used in the field because of local sound truck control ordinances. The tests in the 47K12 group were second best, and our recommendation is that retests be conducted in this appeal, testing each of the three best campaigns with and without the addition of sampling techniques. An alternative suggestion might be to proceed directly with the top appeal in the K12 series if the client is unwilling to go to the expense of additional tests. All of these forecast expectations have an 80% probability of being within one-half of 1% of results forecast and more than 99% probability of coming within 5%. Swanson looked up from the paper into Burkhart's eyes. I don't get it, he complained. Burkhart said, I don't blame you. It's crazy, but it fits the facts, Swanson. It fits the facts. They aren't Russians and they aren't Martians. These people are advertising men. Somehow, heaven knows how they did it, they've taken Tylerton over. They've got us, all of us, you and me and twenty or thirty thousand other people, right under their thumbs. Maybe they hypnotize us, and maybe it's something else, but however they do it, what happens is they let us live a day at a time. They pour advertising into us the whole damned day long, and at the end of the day they see what happened. And then they wash the day out of our minds and start again the next day with different advertising. Swanson's jaw was hanging. He managed to close it and swallow. Nuts, he said flatly. Burkhart shook his head. Sure, it sounds crazy, but this whole thing is crazy. How else would you explain it? You can't deny that most of Tylerton lives the same day over and over again. You've seen it. And that's the crazy part. And we have to admit that that's true, unless we're the crazy ones. And once you admit that somebody, somehow, knows how to accomplish that, the rest of it makes all kinds of sense. Think of it, Swanson. They test every last detail before they spend a nickel on advertising. Do you have any idea what that means? Lord knows how much money is involved, but I know for a fact that some companies spend 20 or $30 million a year on advertising. Multiply it, say, by a 100 companies say that every one of them learns how to cut its advertising cost by only 10%, and that's peanuts, believe me. If they know in advance what's going to work, they can cut their costs in half. Maybe to less than half, I don't know. But that's saving two or three hundred million dollars a year. And if they pay only 10 or 20% of that for use of Tylerton, it's still dirt cheap for them and a fortune for whoever took over Tylerton. Swanson licked his lips. You mean, he offered hesitantly, that we're all, well, a kind of captive audience? Burkhart frowned. Not exactly. He thought for a minute. You know how a doctor tests something like penicillin? He sets up a series of little colonies of germs on gelatin discs, 
and he tries this stuff on one after another, changing it a little each time. Well, that's us. We're the germs, Swanson. Only it's even more efficient than that. They don't have to test more than one colony because they can use it over and over again. It was too hard for Swanson to take it in. He only said, what do we do about it? We go to the police. They can't use human beings for guinea pigs. How do we get to the police? Burkhardt hesitated. I think, he began slowly. Sure. This place is the office of somebody important. We've got a gun. We'll stay right here until he comes along, and he'll get us out of here. Simple and direct. Swanson subsided and found a place to sit against the wall, out of sight of the door. Burkhart took up a position behind the door itself and waited. The wait was not as long as it might have been. Half an hour, perhaps? Then Burkhart heard approaching voices and had time for a swift whisper to Swanson before he flattened himself against the wall. It was a man's voice and a girl's. The man was saying, Reason why you couldn't report on the phone? You're ruining your whole day's test. What the devil's the matter with you, Janet? I'm sorry, Mr. Dorchin, she said with a sweet, clear tone. I thought it was important. The man grumbled. Important? One lousy unit of 21,000. But it's the Burkhart one, Mr. Dorkin, again. And the way he got out of sight, he must have had some help. All right, all right. It doesn't matter, Janet. The Chocobite program is ahead of schedule anyhow. As long as you're this far, come on in the office and make out your worksheet. And don't worry about the Burkhart business. He's probably just wandering around. We'll pick him up tonight and... They were inside the door. Burkhart kicked it shut and pointed the gun. That's what you think, he said triumphantly. It was worth the terrified hours, the bewildered sense of insanity, the confusion and fear. It was the most satisfying sensation Burkhart had ever had in his life. The expression on the man's face was one he had read about but never actually seen. Dorchin's mouth fell open and his eyes went wide, and though he managed to make a sound that might have been a question, it was not in words. The girl was almost as surprised, and Burkhart, looking at her, knew why her voice had been so familiar. The girl was the one who had introduced herself to him as April Horn. Dorchin recovered himself quickly. "'Is this the one?' he asked sharply. The girl said, yes. Dorchin nodded. I take it back. You were right. Uh, you, Burkhart, what do you want? Swanson piped up. Watch him. He might have another gun. Search him then, Burkhart said. I'll tell you what we want, Dorchin. We want you to come along with us to the FBI and explain to them how you can get away with kidnapping 20,000 people. Kidnapping? Dorchin snorted. That's ridiculous, man. Put that gun away. You can't get away with this. Burkhart hefted the gun grimly. I think I can. Dorchin looked furious and sick, but oddly not afraid. Damn it! He started to bellow, then closed his mouth and swallowed. Listen, he said persuasively. You're making a big mistake. 
I haven't kidnapped anybody, believe me. I don't believe you, said Burkhart bluntly. Why should I? But it's true, take my word for it. Burkhart shook his head. The FBI can take your word for it if they like. We'll find out. Now, how do we get out of here? Dorchin opened his mouth to argue. Burkhart blazed. Don't get in my way. I'm willing to kill you if I have to. Don't you understand that? I've gone through two days of hell, and every second of it I blame on you. Kill you? It would be a pleasure. And I don't have a thing in the world to lose. Get us out of here. Dorchin's face went suddenly opaque. He seemed about to move, but the blonde girl he had just called Janet slipped between him and the gun. Please, she begged Burkhart. You don't understand. You mustn't shoot. Get out of my way. But, Mr. Burkhart, she never finished. Dorchin, his face unreadable, headed for the door. Burkhart had been pushed one degree too far. He swung the gun, bellowing. The girl called out sharply. He pulled the trigger. Closing on him with pity and pleading in her eyes, she came again between the gun and the man. Burkhart aimed low instinctively to cripple, not to kill. But his aim was not good. The pistol bullet caught her in the pit of the stomach. Dorchin was out and away the door slamming behind him, his footsteps racing into the distance. Burkhart hurled the gun across the room and jumped to the girl. Swanson was moaning. That finishes us, Burkhart. Oh, why did you do it? We could have got away. We could have gone to the police. We were practically out of here. We... Burkhart wasn't listening. He was kneeling beside the girl. She lay flat on her back, arms helter-skelter. There was no blood, hardly any sign of the wound. But the position in which she lay was one that no living human being could have held. Yet she wasn't dead. She wasn't dead, and Burkhart, frozen beside her, thought, she isn't alive, either. There was no pulse, but there was a rhythmic ticking of the outstretched fingers of one hand. There was no sound of breathing, but there was a hissing, sizzling noise. The eyes were open, and they were looking at Burkhart. There was neither fear nor pain in them, only a pity deeper than the pit. She said, through lips that writhed erratically, Don't worry, Mr. Burkhart. I'm all right. Burkhart rocked back on his haunches, staring. Where there should have been blood, there was a clean break of a substance that was not flesh and a curl of thin golden copper wire. Burkhart moistened his lips. You're a robot, he said. The girl tried to nod. The twitching lips said, I am. And so are you. Swanson, after a single inarticulate sound, walked over to the desk and sat staring at the wall. Burkhart rocked back and forth beside the shattered puppet on the floor. He had no words. The girl managed to say, I'm sorry all this happened. The lovely lips twisted into a rictus sneer, frightening on that smooth young face, until she got them under control 
Sorry, she said again. The nerve center was right about where the bullet hit. Makes it difficult to control this body. Burkhart nodded automatically, accepting the apology. Robots. It was obvious, now that he knew it. In hindsight, it was inevitable. He thought of his mystic notions of hypnosis or Martians or something stranger still. Idiotic. For the simple fact of created robots fitted the facts better and more economically. All the evidence had been before him. The automated factory with its transplanted minds. Why not transplant a mind into a humanoid robot? Give it its original owner's features and form. Could it know that it was a robot? All of us, Burkhart said, hardly aware that he spoke out loud. My wife and my secretary and you and the neighbors, all of us the same. No, the voice was stronger. Not exactly the same, all of us. I chose it, you see. I, this time, the convulsed lips were not a random contortion of the nerves. I was an ugly woman, Mr. Burkhart, and nearly sixty years old. Life had passed me, and when Mr. Dorchin offered me the chance to live again as a beautiful girl, I jumped at the opportunity. Believe me, I jumped, in spite of its disadvantages. My flesh body is still alive. It is sleeping while I am here. I could go back to it, but I never do. And the rest of us? different, Mr. Burkhart. I work here. I'm carrying out Mr. Dorchin's orders, mapping the results of the advertising tests, watching you and the others live as he makes you live. I do it by choice, but you have no choice. Because, you see, you are dead. Dead! cried Burkhart. It was almost a scream. The blue eyes looked at him unwinkingly and he knew that it was no lie. He swallowed, marveling at the intricate mechanisms that let him swallow and sweat and eat. He said, Oh, the explosion in my dream. It was no dream. You are right, the explosion. That was real, and this plant was the cause of it. The storage tanks let go, and what the blast didn't get, the fumes killed a little later. But almost everyone died in the blast. Twenty-one thousand persons. You died with them. And that was Dorton's chance. The damned ghoul, said Burkhart. The twisted shoulders shrugged with an odd grace. Why? You were gone. And you and all the others were what Dorton wanted. A whole town, a perfect slice of America. It's as easy to transfer a pattern from a dead brain as a living one. Easier. The dead can't say no. Oh, it took work and money. The town was a wreck. But it was possible to rebuild it entirely, especially because it wasn't necessary to have all the details exact. There were the homes, where even the brains had been utterly destroyed, and those are empty inside. And the cellars that needn't be too perfect. And the streets that hardly matter. And anyway, it only has to last for one day, the same day, June 15th, over and over again. And if someone finds something a little wrong somehow, the discovery won't have time to snowball. 
wreck the validity of the tests because all errors are canceled out at midnight. The face tried to smile. That's the dream, Mr. Burkhart. That day of June 15th, because you never really lived it. It's a present from Mr. Dorchin, a dream that he gives you and then takes back at the end of the day, when he has all his figures on how many of you responded to what variation of which appeal. And the maintenance crews go down the tunnel and go through the whole city, washing out the new dream with their little electronic drains. And then the dream starts all over again on June 15th. Always June 15th, because June 14th is the last day any of you can remember alive. Sometimes the crews miss someone, as they missed you, because you were under your boat. But it doesn't matter. The ones who are missed give themselves away if they show it. And if they don't, it doesn't affect the test. But they don't drain us, the ones of us who work for Dorchin. We sleep when the power is turned off, just as you do. Then we wake up, though we remember. The face contorted wildly. If I could only forget. Burkhart said unbelievingly, all this to sell merchandise. It must have cost millions. The robot called April Horn said, it did, but it has made millions for Dorchin too. And that's not the end of it. Once he finds the master words that make people act, do you suppose he will stop with that? Do you suppose? The door opened, interrupting her. Burkhart whirled. Belatedly remembering Dorchin's flight, he raised the gun. Don't shoot, ordered the voice calmly. It was not Dorchin. It was another robot, this one not disguised with the clever plastics and cosmetics, but shining plain. It said metallically, Forget it, Burkhart. You're not accomplishing anything. Give me that gun before you do any more damage. Give it to me now. Burkhart bellowed angrily. The gleam on this robot torso was steel. Burkhart was not at all sure that his bullets would pierce it or do much harm if they did. He would have to put it to the test. But from behind him came a whimpering, scurrying whirlwind. Its name was Swanson, hysterical with fear. He catapulted into Burkhart and sent him sprawling, the gun flying free. Please, begged Swanson incoherently, prostrate before the steel robot. He would have shot you. Please don't hurt me. Let me work for you, like that girl. I'll do anything, anything you tell me. The robot voice said, We don't need your help. It took two precise steps and stood over the gun and spurned it left it lying on the floor. The wrecked blonde robot said without emotion, I doubt that I can hold out much longer, Mr. Dorchin. Disconnect if you have to, replied the steel robot. Burkhart blinked. But you're not Dorchin. The steel robot turned deep eyes on him. I am, it said. Not in the flesh, but this is the body I am using at the moment. I doubt that you can damage this one with the gun. The other robot body was more vulnerable. Now, will you stop this nonsense? I don't want to have to damage you. You're too expensive for that. Will you just sit down and let the maintenance crews adjust you? Swanson groveled. You... you won't punish us? 
The steel robot had no expression, but its voice was almost surprised. Punish you? It repeated in a rising note. How? Swanson quivered as though the word had been a whip, but Burkhart flared. Adjust him if he'll let you, but not me. You're going to have to do me a lot of damage, Dorchin. I don't care what I cost or how much trouble it's going to be to put me back together again. But I'm going out of that door. If you want to stop me, you'll have to kill me. You won't stop me any other way. The steel robot took a half step toward him, and Burkhart involuntarily checked his stride. He stood poised and shaking, ready for death, ready for attack, ready for anything that might happen. Ready for anything except what did happen. For Dorchin's steel body merely stepped aside, between Burkhart and the gun, but leaving the door free. Go ahead, invited the steel robot. Nobody's stopping you. Outside the door, Burkhart brought up sharp. It was insane of Dorchin to let him go. Robot or flesh, victim or beneficiary, there was nothing to stop him from going to the FBI or whatever law he could find away from Dorchin's synthetic empire and telling his story. Surely the corporations who paid Dorchin for test results had no notion of the ghoul's technique he used. Dorchin would have to keep it from them, for the breath of publicity would put a stop to it. Walking out meant death, perhaps, but at that moment, in his pseudo-life, death was no terror for Burkhart. There was no one in the corridor. He found a window and stared out of it. There was Tylerton, an Irsat city, but looking so real and familiar that Burkhart almost imagined the whole episode a dream. It was no dream, though. He was certain of that in his heart, and equally certain that nothing in Tylerton could help him now. It had to be the other direction. It took him a quarter of an hour to find a way, but he found it, skulking through the corridors, dodging the suspicion of footsteps, knowing for certain that his hiding was in vain, for Dorchin was undoubtedly aware of every move he made. But no one stopped him, and he found another door. It was a simple enough door from the inside, but when he opened it and stepped out, it was like nothing he had ever seen. First there was light, brilliant, incredible, blinding light. Burkhart blinked upward, unbelieving and afraid. He was standing on a ledge of smooth, finished metal. Not a dozen yards from his feet, the ledge dropped sharply away. He hardly dared approach the brink, but even from where he stood he could see no bottom to the chasm before him. And the gulf extended out of sight into the glare on either side of him. No wonder Dorchin could so easily give him his freedom. From the factory there was nowhere to go. But how incredible this fantastic gulf, how impossible the hundred white and blinding suns that hung above. A voice by his side said inquiringly, Burkhart? And thunder rolled the name, muttering softly back and forth in the abyss before him. Burkhart wet his lips. It... Yes? He croaked. This is Dorchin, not a robot this time. 
but Dorton in the flesh, talking to you on a hand mic. Now you have seen Burkhart. Now will you be reasonable and let the maintenance crews take over? Burkhart stood paralyzed. One of the moving mountains in the blinding glare came toward him. It towered hundreds of feet over his head. He stared up at its top, squinting helplessly into the light. It looked like... Impossible. The voice in the loudspeaker at the door said, Burkhart? But he was unable to answer. A heavy, rumbling sigh. I see, said the voice. You finally understand. There's no place to go. You know it now. I could have told you, but you might not have believed me. So it was better for you to see it yourself. And after all, Burkhart, why would I reconstruct a city just the way it was before? I'm a businessman. I count costs. If a thing has to be full scale, I build it that way. But there wasn't any need to in this case. From the mountain before him, Burkhart helplessly saw a lesser cliff descend carefully toward him. It was long and dark, and at the end of it was whiteness. Five-fingered whiteness. Poor little Burkhart, crooned the loudspeaker, while the echoes rumbled through the enormous chasm that was only a workshop. It must have been quite a shock for you to find out you were living in a town built on a tabletop. It was the morning of June 15th, and Guy Burkhart woke up screaming out of a dream. It had been a monstrous and incomprehensible dream of explosions and shadowy figures that were not men and terror beyond words. He shuddered and opened his eyes. Outside his bedroom window, a hugely amplified voice was howling. Burkhart stumbled over to the window and stared outside. There was an out-of-season chill to the air, more like October than June. But the scent was normal enough, except for the sound truck that squatted at curbside halfway down the block. Its speaker horns blared. Are you a coward? Are you a fool? Are you going to let crooked politicians steal the country from you? No. Are you going to put up with four more years of graft and crime? No. Are you going to vote straight federal party all up and down the ballot? Yes. You just bet you are. Sometimes he screams. Sometimes he wheedles, threatens, begs, cajoles. But his voice goes on and on through one June 15th after another. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family. And if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>